Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. If not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or on whatever app you use to listen to your podcasts. So today I'm in my Miami closet studio and I'm joined in RTC studio by two of my colleagues. Um, my, first, our legal advisor, Andrea picciotti Bayer. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. Always so nice to see you and talk to you. So Andrea and I can see each other, although, although our listeners can only hear us. And Ashley. Hello, Ashley. How are you? Hello. Good. Thank you for joining us. So today is actually a, a, a big day in the annals of Conversations with Consequences, because today we are starting, this is the first of our uh, many-part series that we're planning. It's called The Church on the Ground, Going Forward in Joy. And what we're planning to do with this is we plan to talk about, to talk to people in parishes across the United States um, who are far away from policy and the politics that we normally talk about on Conversations with Consequences and other sort of overarching complicated concerns. Um, and they are quietly but joyously carrying on the work of the kingdom. So we are a church that is wounded right now. That's true. And as always, we're, we're the church militant. Um, but we're very much alive. And we're going to try to focus on, we're going to focus on lots of different parishes and, and initiatives that are going on across the country and showing how the church is alive. Gracia, a couple uh Days ago, I was in New York City with a gathering of women, Catholic women, and uh, we were speaking with a prelate of Opus Dei, and it was amazing to me how many people are living their faith um, despite a lot of snarky um, retorts of people around them, but they're living it with joy and they're living it with profound love for the people, even the snarky ones. And... Mm -hmm. um, and and this is this show is a great opportunity to really highlight some of the wonderful things that people are doing, um, not just from the social justice or social good perspective, but really helping souls um, develop a personal relationship with Christ and and understand and embrace and celebrate Catholic doctrine and try to live it. No, and also the fact that as much as uh, the church is uh, all about theology and thinking and and all that it's also about real life people find their 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 joy in the church and being a part of of the church uh, community of the church family and there's so many ways to do that and you know vibrant parishes have lots of ways for people to become part of that family i my my parish in miami has on sundays seven masses i think four of them are in spanish and every single one of them is packed and once a month we have a youth adoration and uh, for an hour, for an hour from nine to ten on a Monday night, the, the there must be two or three hundred young people from you know between the ages of like twelve and maybe twenty one, who go and, and adore at the sacrament and sing songs, you know, playing guitars, and and, and it's absolutely um, very vibrant. And I think we all have to keep that very much in mind as we go forward with with our church that is wounded. I I my church does not have seven masses, but. Um... I do love the sort of its own sort of vibrancy that it has. We we have um, everything from a regular Latin mass all the way to a very sort of contemporary 
Sunday night young adult mass. And um, the thing that I've really grown to love is the the coffee and donuts hour after <laughs> after the ten thirty <laughs> service. My kids especially have grown to love it. Um, but my Teresa calls Sunday Donut Day. Yeah. That's, that's really been where my family has gotten to know other young Catholic families. And, you know, for example, we, we became friends with this couple and, and learned that they were struggling with infertility and found out that they adopted a baby. And my husband actually became uh, the godfather. And so that to me is sort of those are the ties that bind right now in these sort of difficult times in the church are these individual relationships that are forged over, you know, cheap Dunkin' Donut donuts and hey. you know mass produced coffee yeah um, we're all all of us are hungry right for connection and and, and for and for love and donuts and what better place to find it than in church so anyway the first person we're going to have on to talk about um these the church on the ground going forward in joy is father christopher pollard He's a theologian with degrees from the university of chicago notre dame and the pontifical gregorian university in rome and he's also the pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean, Virginia. And I believe he's your pastor, right, Andrea? He is. And I am so thankful that I landed, my family landed in his parish. It was clearly the hand of God bringing us back to this beautiful country of ours from uh, the beautiful country in South America of Colombia. And um, our family has really uh, grown a lot thanks to the, the good shepherd of Father Pollard and the lovely families of our parish. So it's great well, for me thank to have you. him here with us. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Father Pollard. Welcome to thank Conversations you, with Consequences. Great to be here. So, Father, there are so many things that we want to talk to you about, um, and, and we're really g- grateful that you battled Washington traffic and, like, a 1,000-degree weather um, in your truck to get here to join us. Um, but one thing that we touched upon in in starting off the show was – kind of the div- variety and the diversity uh, that you can find in a Catholic parish these days, whether it be um, in different ethnic groups and communities. Um, and in our parish, we have a very beautiful mix of the traditional Latin rite and the new rite. And I was wondering, um, you're kind of like a specialist in the U.S., kind of like the expert, if you could talk a little bit about the Latin Mass and, and that you're offering at St. John's and the interest, especially among young people, um, to come to the church and to celebrate this beautiful treasure that we have in the traditional Mass. It's a real beautiful ministry, and it's, it's one that I was engaged in back in 2006. Uh, some people might know that the 12th anniversary of Samorum Pontificum just came and went on July 7th. It's an easy date to remember, 777, when Pope Benedict XVI issued a decree which granted really unlimited access, not just to the to the right of the Roman Church, um, but also all the sacraments, and all the blessings, and all the liturgical rites that were uh, alive and well uh, in the 1960s and for many centuries prior to that. But before July 7, 2007, it was only available on a very limited basis, and a bishop had to give specific permission. There were some priests who had permission personally from the Holy See in order to be able to do that. And 
when Pope Benedict gave that wide permission, I don't think the average Catholic could have anticipated what was going to happen. What Pope John Paul II did in 1988 with the Ecclesia Dei Commission was to try to heal the wound of, of separation that had happened because of Archbishop Lefebvre consecrating four bishops without, um, without permission. When, um, when that rupture occurred, there were many people who um, stopped going to Mass. They stopped going to the local parish. And I found many people, whether it be in my work at St. John the Baptist in Front Royal in those early years, from 2006 to 2009, or even presently at the um, parish of St. John the Beloved, it's, it's not only been able to provide another option for people who are interested in that particular liturgical rite, it's healed a lot of people, it's brought a lot of people back who hadn't been to church in many decades, hmm. and it's also introduced a new generation to something just simply beautiful. Do you think, Father, that the that the that the interest that young people feel in this? Do you think it's driven by an emptiness that was there from maybe the the guitar masses and the the way that the masses uh, became so casual? Like we maybe young people. I I know I I find the Latin mass very moving. The, the young people want something that that feels deep and solid and solemn. That's one part of it. That's certainly how I came to know it. Uh, I'm grateful for what Pope John Paul II did in 1988 because I started college a year later. And I was witness to things that I had never imagined would be still happening in the 1980s and uh, were going to be joyful. So I won't talk about all the things that <laughs> were happening on campus Good. ministry. Good father. But it's Forward then that I sought out and found, fortunately, St. John Cantius in Chicago. And they had just begun the traditional Latin Mass. And it was uh, something totally brand, brand new to me. And I think there are many people who have sought out the, the traditional Mass, or as we call it now, with the nomenclature of Pope Benedict, the extraordinary form, precisely because they haven't seen reverence where they've been going to Mass. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, in the Diocese of Arlington, it's really easy to find a beautiful, reverent Novus Ordo Mass, whether it be in English or in Latin. Mm -hmm. So I think there were even that many more people who thought that it wouldn't, it wouldn't have that much attraction where people by and large can be present when Mass is celebrated well. But it's been enormously popular. Father, for our listeners who aren't familiar, could you sort of break down what are maybe the five or six key distinctions between the Latin Mass and the, even even for my own benefit, sure. um, I'm sort of a, a somewhat new Catholic myself, mm -hmm. um, and the Novus Ordo. That's that's the sort of ordinary Mass that you would encounter. Yeah, that's our slang term for it, the right. Novus Ordo <laughs> and the T Mass. Um, well, when I was brand new, newly ordained, and at Saint Mark in Vienna. I had a very generous pastor who gave me permission to do a Novus Ordo Mass on Friday evenings in the most traditional way that I could, which is actually how Bishop Keating was encouraging priests in the 80s to 
satisfy their desires for uh, things traditional. So it was a Novus Ordo Mass, but it was with everyone facing the tabernacle. So the priest was on the people's side of the altar so that everyone was facing the same direction. The priest would turn around when the prayers are directed to the people. The prayers were in Latin. Uh, the chant was um, the traditional Gregorian chant, which comes from the uh, early Middle Ages. And most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and an extraordinary form mass. It's someone who really knows the details that um, would have been able to pick it up. Word actually spread, I heard from other priests, I hear you're doing the old mass. And this is 1998 when I certainly didn't have any personal permission from the Holy See to be doing so. And I just chuckled and chalked it up to how beautiful the Novus Ordo can be, or how traditional the Novus Ordo can be. So for someone who's coming from a regular parish, and all of a sudden they find themselves at a traditional Latin Mass, um, that will be the, uh, the things that will be most distinctive will also be distinctive about going to a Novus Ordo Mass in Latin. The priest is facing the same direction, everything's in Latin, a lot of it's chanted, and unless they know Latin, they might not know the words. But fortunately, since we all have the Novus Ordo memorized in our own language, whether it be Spanish or English, people will be able to know generally what's going on at any given moment. Father, you, you make a great mention to um, the fact that Spanish masses and English masses and both Gracie and I appreciate both. And, and now, especially in, in the Arlington, Virginia diocese, you have Latin masses in Latin very available in many different parishes. How do we, how do you in your parish not have two different churches? You have a, a Novus Ordo Mass in English and a traditional Mass in Latin. How do you not have two different parishes within your one parish? How do you make sure that there isn't, well, those are, you know, the Latin Mass goers, and, or like it often happens in parishes, those are the Spanish speaking Mass? goers and those are the english-speaking masses because we're one universal church that has a, a beautiful uh, wealth of diversity in it because you've you've done that and it's a great recipe to pass on i think well a lot of people have done that uh, it began with uh, all the pastors before me father scalia father mcafee father hathaway and th it, it is a real problem and there are many parishes that that suffer that, whether it be there's the Spanish mass community and the English mass community, and those populations don't intermingle, or uh, a Latin mass community and an English mass community, or an extraordinary form population and an ordinary form population, and they don't intermingle. That's a definite possibility. Uh, I think we overcome that with food. Not coffee and donuts as much as, <laughs> as much as barbecue. And you surprised me, Father. <laughs> we just try to we try to make parish events uh, attractive and enjoyable for everybody. Um, but on a practical note, a lot of the um, continuity comes from the Novus Ordo masses, the regular masses, all the masses being done uh, as reverently as possible. Uh, the music is as similar as possible, and the, the end result is that there are a lot of people who 
ordinarily only go to the old mass, but they're, they'll go to our regular masses too from time to time and vice versa. And there's a big, um, uh, there's a lot of continuity between uh, all the people that go to the different masses. Father, recently, this is Gracie, I was in London and visiting my daughter who's at Oxford and she, uh, and I, I, stay, I was staying right near the Brompton Oratory and Which is in beautiful. Kensington and they had masses. I, I ended up, I go to daily mass, so I went to mass every day at different times and I ended up catching three different masses and they were all very beautifully done. All, they were all, yes. all done ad orientem, the, yes. the priest facing away from us. Yes. And, but I, it was, they did the, the vernacular, Novus Ordu, the, right. the Latin, and also the extraordinary form. And, and I, I thought it was so fabulous to open the, the missalette, not the missalette, I'm sorry, the, you know, the guide to all the different masses and understand that I could, I could pick and choose during the day to which kind of mass. And, and I felt that all of them had uh, beautiful inflections and they were causing me to think differently during the mass and to pray differently. Yeah, Brompton is a beautiful parish. It, uh, it's more Roman than Rome, honestly. Hmm. It's, uh, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's its own kind of perfection. So, uh, and they're a good example of how the, the ordinary rituals of the church can be done in a way that's just really pleasing to God and uplifting to souls. Father, you've had um, experience here in the U.S. and in Rome and in New York, which is like a whole different country. Um, what do you see is growing after Pope Benedict's motu proprio? Is, is there, there's a lot of growth and in interest in the old and the new here in the Northern Virginia, Arlington Diocese, and even in, in Washington as well. Do you see that happening across the country and, and in Europe or in, in different places? Or is it something that's kind of slow going in your mind? It's prevalent enough that you hear a lot of people concerned about all these young priests and all these seminarians who are, in their mind, too interested in these old things. There's definitely a JP2 effect after the Denver World Youth Day and all the other World Youth Days. There's definitely a Benedict effect. And it's evident in, I would say, prominent, um, prominent Catholic thinkers who didn't take the old mass seriously until Pope Benedict gave um, the wide permission. And it's it's happy to see that happen but um it's definitely it's widespread that's for sure well at a time where the church really needs an extra vitamin boost this is a great great old vitamin that's been there you know to to remind our listeners we're talking to father christopher pollard who is the pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean, where he celebrates the extraordinary form of the Mass, or the old Latin Mass, and has built a ministry around that and a, and a very vibrant parish. And so, actually, we'd like to take a short break, and we'll come back in a few minutes and talk to Father Pollard a little more about this. Welcome back, friends. This is your host, Dr. Gracie Christie. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences, uh, service of the Catholic Association. This is the first of our multi-part series called The Church on the Ground, Going Forward in Joy. It's a series in which we plan to talk to people in parishes across the United States 
who, far away from policy and politics and the other sort of overarching concerns that we talk about here on Conversations, they are quietly but joyously carrying on the work of the kingdom. So we're a church that is wounded, it's true, but we're very much alive. And today we are very happy to have Father Pollard, who is the pastor of St. John the Beloved in McLean, Virginia. Um, in it's, he's in his parish, he celebrates uh, to great effect the extraordinary form of the Mass, which is the old Latin Mass. And he was telling us about this in, in our first segment. So welcome back, Father Pollard. Hi, Gracie. Hi. You know, I really wanted to ask you, when we were talking about the Latin Mass, what is the effect? What Explain to us a little bit. So, for instance, in my parish, we ha- I have a very vibrant parish, and nobody has ever celebrated, as far as I know, I've been there for 30 years, of a Latin Mass. Um, so what so what is the effect of, a, of on a parish when when a priest starts to celebrate the beautiful Latin Mass? Uh, initially, it's probably a, a great deal of confusion and worry and concern, um, <laughs> to be honest, um, unless it's at a time when Mass wasn't already happening anyway. So um, when I started that Friday evening Mass in my first parish, that was at a time when there was no other parish Mass anyway. So it was a really beautiful opportunity to not be in competition with anything and not displace anyone. I think that's the usual first uh, first reaction. Um, the first benefit um, is people discovering something new. Uh, in fact, I sometimes jokingly call it the new Mass, not the old Mass. The old Mass is what we've been doing for the last 40 years, but the new Mass is something that's bringing people to uh, a level of contemplation that maybe wasn't as easy to achieve uh, otherwise. Mm-hmm. Part of it is because a, a lot of the mass is, is silent. So the biggest difference um, that I should have explained earlier is that the while the, while the regular mass, the ordinary form mass, has a few prayers that are silent, not many, before the priest prays the, uh, preaches the gospel before the priest offers up the, um, the Eucharistic prayer, before he washes his hands, uh, before the priest receives Holy Communion, he prays silently in the regular Mass. You might notice that, you might not. All of those prayers have to do with the priest's own sinfulness and his need for God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, in the extraordinary form, what the church was doing for over a thousand years before, all of those prayers in which the priest was asking for forgiveness, they were there. Some of them were out loud. Some of them were silent. But the prayer that's the central mystery of the church, uh, which brings about our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, the whole Eucharistic prayer, that's done quietly. And that's probably the most unsettling part. But when someone eventually comes to appreciate how that can be beneficial to the whole Eucharistic prayer, which would have been um, equivalent to the first Eucharistic prayer that we have now, one of many, what we call the Roman canon, so rather a lengthy prayer. When that's done in complete silence, it's, it's going to be awkward at first, but it, it also invites someone to participate interiorly, to, mm-hmm. to make the effort not just to hear the words and, and acknowledge that they are familiar, but to, but to ponder, why is that priest up there 
in silence. In truth, he's not absolutely silent. The, the server is supposed to be able to hear his whispered prayers at the altar. But there's something um, for a priest truly beautiful about being able to whisper those prayers at the altar because something truly miraculous is happening. Bread and wine are changing into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And it's not his action. It's the action of the Holy Spirit. And when that's done relatively silently, it's an invitation to, to even deeper prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, wrote about that quite a bit in his various um, books about the liturgy. Um, the silent canon was something that he um, loved and mm -hmm. hoped that people would be able to experience again. Father, I'm going to say um, something, I guess, scandalous. Uh, <laughs> Careful, Andrea. Gracie, what's yeah. going on? <laughs> no, I was going to say. Sometimes. <laughs> I do. I, sometimes I go rogue. Um, I am. I'm uh, clerical. I'm super clerical. I love. I love our priests. I love our priests. I pray for our priests. And I know um, right now, in particular, our priests, especially in the U.S., are under um, a lot of attack. And, and it's it's tough tough to be a priest in general, and really tough now. Um, and, and thinking about and preparing for our conversation today, I was reflecting and looking back on a book from your predecessor, uh, Father Scalia, and in the foreword of his book, uh, Archbishop Chaput writes, um, one of my favorite sayings over the many years of my ministry is this, there, are, there is no presence of Jesus in the world without the church, no church without the Eucharist, no Eucharist without the priest and no priest without good Christian men and women who raise their sons to listen for God's calling. Um, you've been a priest for a number of years, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit with us about your appreciating the vocation and how you're helping other young men hear God's call to the priesthood, because we need you. Yeah, it's a profound mystery. It's... Uh, and for me, by the grace of God, it's been 21 years. And I still am frequently struck at how n no one deserves this. Uh, no human being by right should be doing what a priest does, especially at the altar. And what I hope for is people to fall in love with the Mass for young people to fall in love with the Mass, to, to grow in personal prayer. You won't, you're not going to love the Mass unless you have a personal prayer life. Mass is boring uh, and is something needing to be spruced up or um, made entertaining unless it's communal prayer, right? Because we're saying the same prayers pretty much every time. That's pretty tedious unless we're meditating. So people who, who meditate a little bit every day, the rosary is a good start. Uh, the divine office is great too people who meditate every day see in, in the Sunday gathering of God's people something utterly profound, something that St. John Vianney compared to a bonfire. When individual people pray, it's like lighting a candle. When everyone prays together, it's a bonfire. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, don't, I don't think many of us experience a bonfire um, unless we are people of prayer who know we're with people of prayer which is why so many people love daily Mass. People who have a prayer life love daily Mass. They endure mm -hmm. Sunday Mass. <laughs> um, 
when a Sunday Mass community is intentional in the sense that there's something special about their gathering. It may be people who are gathered in a common work. It may be a parish that has a real missionary heart. There's something transformative about everyone being together. So I hope that young people have a personal prayer life, that they fall in love with the Mass. And then hopefully young men realize that even though they want to have a, a wife and children, they'd be willing to give it up if God asked them to. And, um, and it'd be worth it to be able to make um, Christ's promise always to be with his people uh, a promise fulfilled at that specific place. We know Christ's promises will be fulfilled no matter what, but in any given place, there's no guarantee in a particular church or chapel in a particular diocese or country the church isn't guaranteed to live so it's a it's a fragile reality and father the the church is more fragile today than ever it seems to us right after it is. after the abuse crisis uh, and and the many years this has been going on it is could you tell us what effect the abuse crisis has had on priests in your diocese maybe starting with yourself i know that's a huge question um to put into a one minute and two minute answer uh, you know the uh, to remind our listeners, the, the, some of the prominent abusers, like former Cardinal McCarrick and Bishop Bransfield, were very are very close to your parish in McLean. Geographically, geographically, geographically. When um, it's, I always tell my people, don't don't give too much extra consideration to a priest or a bishop who says his his life is very hard or he's suffering so much because of the crisis and the persecution uh we're 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 supposed to be persecuted um so be be prayerful don't be overly sympathetic most people might find it hard to believe some people would see it immediately that few people are angrier than priests about what other priests have done Mm-hmm, I'm it's sure. because of those priests that people uh, yell expletives at me from time to time. Oh. It's because of those priests and bishops that um, uh, some people don't go to church anymore and don't mm-hmm. receive the sacraments anymore. It'd be priests, it'd be a certain number of priests um, who would be the quickest to send other priests to jail uh, or to even worse punishment. Uh, without hesitation Mm -hmm. because we know we made the same promise and we're keeping the promise so there's um, very little very little sympathy for someone who's um, failed in that promise father i think that you know for those who really are sort of struggling in their faith in the wake of all this um, it's so important and part of, you know, a big part of what we try to do at the Catholic Association um, and what we're trying to do with this podcast is to um, shine light on all the overwhelming good that the church does, all the reasons to be hopeful and optimistic. Um, and so much of that happens, I think, at the parish level and, you know, with one-to-one contact with ministries that people are running in their churches, um, you know, sort of two-part question in your 21 years as a priest um what what sort of changes have you seen that are are good um or or you know what are the trends that make you feel 
optimistic about uh, the direction of the American church. Um, and then in your own in your own parish, what um, what sorts of uh, projects or, or things are you seeing that make you feel really sort of hopeful and optimistic about about your church and and its role in, in the broader American church? Plenty, but there's every year there's more people. I should say additional people. It's not always more people every year. Every year there's additional people who are choosing to become Catholic as adults. Mm-hmm. The RCIA class is always bringing in people who are choosing to become Catholic precisely at this time in history. They're that much more deliberate. From the very beginning, I would always warn people, especially those uh, who were well-read and those who already had a, a an apostolate as, as Christians. It's not as though they're their work is done and they can finally rest now that they're in full communion with the Catholic Church. Now is when their work really is, is beginning. And, and so many of them have, have really taken up that mantle and that's exciting. The number of vocations in the Diocese of Arlington has remained steady. Uh, I'd love to see it go up, but it's remarkable that even this year we have 11 new seminarians. It's been several decades in a row where the goal is almost always met of 10 new seminarians a year, and that hasn't changed at all. Um, I think it, it's, it's also made everyone who's survived that much more purposeful. Um, it's easy and it's understandable, and no one's going to give someone a hard time to distance themselves from the church, whether they just go to church less frequently or take it all uh, to heart less or, or don't go at all anymore. So the people that um, the people that persevere are that much more deliberate about it. One thing that can crystallize for us is that our faith is firmly in Jesus Christ. It's not in a person. Mm-hmm. The, the creed that we pray in English every Sunday has a glaring mistake in it. There's a paragraph in the catechism that corrects this mistake. But in, in Latin, we we. We say, credo in unum Deum, credo in Jesum Christum, credo in Spiritum Sanctum. And uh, underneath that profession of faith in the Holy Spirit, we profess um, that we credo, that we believe, unum sanctum catholicum et apostolicum ecclesium, that we believe the church. In English, for the last 40 years, we've been praying that line with a preposition in we always say every sunday we believe in one holy catholic and apostolic mm-hmm. church that's actually a theological mistake um we can understand that the the real meaning of those words but it's really important we don't entrust our heart to other people we entrust our heart and our soul and all of our desires and all of our needs and we we belong to god we believe in God. We believe the church. We believe the witness of the apostles. We believe with the church. We trust the church. Um, but we believe in God. And that's something that is all, every person at, at every time of life is going to be rejuvenated by remembering that I believe in Jesus. And his, his ministers, his apostles were flawed, but still given a divine mandate. Father Pollard, um as I mentioned when we were starting this, uh, my family and I, we came to your parish a couple years ago, and I was struck 
um, by the super influential people that are parishioners there. Uh, and there'd be times where I'd be reading about someone uh, for work and sit down and look over and see them uh, seated in the pew next to me and be like, oh, crazy. Um, and because <laughs> they're all, you know, these very influential people in the Washington world, uh, in, in law and in politics. And you're their father. You're their um, spiritual guide. And it's, it struck me that that's, that's a lot on your shoulders. Um, how have you been able to manage the importance of reminding them, me, all of us, uh, of our humility before God and our, our, the importance of humility, especially when there's so many platitudes and so much um, power that they wield in their daily work lives? I remember when I was at St. Agnes in Arlington from 02 to 06, early morning mass, usually occasions a short homily. It doesn't anymore for me except for the days of Lent. And that <laughs> early morning mass uh, wasn't one that found me well prepared to preach, but I preached anyway after reading the gospel. And it was, it was a terrible homily. It was just <laughs> atrocious. And as I, as I looked up to walk back to the altar and the chair, I saw one of my heroes, uh, David Schindler, in the back row. He's one of the great theologians of the 20th century. And oh. I, I felt such shame that he had to endure something <laughs> such, oh. so worthless. But then a whole other wave of shame swept over me when I realized no, I, I should feel that shameful for any of my people to hear that. Right. It doesn't, it's, not like, it's not like a bad <laughs> homily is okay to foist on regular people, but only on like, theologians should a good homily be the <laughs> I'm going to interject and say like, he's one of the best homilists I've ever heard. So I know, he's just I heard being like uber humble himself. Sorry, continue. Father, you gave, continue, continue. Father, you gave a wonderful homily recently when I was visiting your church with Andrea. We went for a daily mass. It was just a regular daily mass, like at nine in the morning, I think it was. And But I want to mention your church is, is a strange, to me, it felt a very, like a strange place to be doing the 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 extraordinary, we weren't at the extraordinary form of the Mass. We were at a regular vernacular Mass. But it seemed to me strange because the church is round. Can you uh, tell <laughs> us how that, how that works? It's amazing how quickly people adapt to it. It's an unusual shape. It's a church in the octagon. The pews are, are circular. There are a few ancient churches like San Stefano Rotondo in Rome that are circular churches. Uh, they were marketplaces that were then turned into um, oh, houses I didn't of worship. Oh, they're unusual, but they, they exist. It's not the norm. Uh, St. John's was designed by someone who was uh, a hero of the Asian missions who had been in China for decades and found, found it a, a, a useful way to put as many people in church uh, with the uh, least amount of money being paid per square foot. So I think it was entirely mm. utilitarian. <laughs> but we make the best of it. But, you know, Father, um, when uh, a couple of years ago at a parish retreat, Monsignor Charles Pope uh, here in Washington, who's like one of the coolest guys in the universe. Do Sorry. we make the sign of the cross when we hear Monsignor Pope? He's say? so awesome. And he <laughs> said, um, you guys don't realize it. You're in the middle of a baptismal font. And at that moment, um, it struck me, gosh, you're darn right. Every Every moment is a chance to really remember our divine filiation. We are children of God. And that is, although an awkward, um, awkwardly constructed parish church you have, it, it is 
there are always these opportunities that God's giving us to remember our mission. So, Andrea, I remember you did tell me that when we were in the church because I said, "Why is the priest facing away from us, and we're, wh or why are we standing? Why are we sitting behind him?" <laughs> Don't you realize you're <laughs> in a baptismal font, crazy? It's, it's Stop. Somebody's seeing my face. Someone's seeing the back of my head. Exactly. It was a little. It was a little odd for me. But Father Pollard, it's been such a joy to have you with thank us, you. and thank you for kicking off our series. And Happy and I think it's start. wonderful to start to start the series with uh, with you with with a uh, with a parish that is that is finding uh, vibrancy and fervor and and life in the extraordinary form of the mass and all that beauty that is our heritage from so many thousands of years. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for joining us. Thank you, Father. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. Every week, Father Roger Landry gives us a treat, and he sends us a homily for this upcoming Sunday's Gospel. Stay tuned for Father Landry's homily. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation God wants to have with us this Sunday. This Sunday, we'll revisit the scene of Jesus' baptism. Today, we'll hear St. John cry out, not, behold the Lamb, or behold the Messiah, or look, the Son of God, or here is the Savior, the King of the Jews and King of Kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Light of the World, the Resurrection of Life, or any of the other fitting titles that would have filled his listeners with awe at the incredible majesty of the one he was pointing out whose sandal strap John was saying he wasn't worthy to undie. Instead, John will use the expression that was not majestic at all. Behold the Lamb of God. We've become so accustomed to the phrase Lamb of God, which we pray in the Gloria, sing or say three times in the prayer called the Agnus Dei, or hear the priest say when he holds up Jesus' body and tells us to behold him that many of us no longer sense what the Jews would have felt when the Baptist referred to Jesus in this way. Imagine, however, someone said to you, look, there is the pigeon of heaven, or look, the squirrel of the Almighty, or behold, the chihuahua of God. Your reaction would be something similar to the first reaction of the Jews to Jesus when they heard the term lamb. Lambs aren't high on our list of beloved or admired animals. They're not noted for their strength or looks. They're not impressive like elephants or tigers, stallions, bulls, or eagles. Jesus, however, identified with the humble attributes of the lamb. He identified with the lamb sacrificed by Abel that was pleasing to God. With the lamb God provided for Abraham's sacrifice so that Isaac wouldn't die. With the lambs whose blood was placed in the lintels of the Jews during the Passover. With the lambs that were offered each day to God in the temple in atonement for sin. Jesus assimilated in himself the identity and sacrificial purpose of the lamb in Jewish mentality to become precisely the acceptable sacrifice offered to the Lord to take away the sins, not just of the Jews, but of the whole world. Beholding Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Jews were invited to see something far greater at work than just a carpenter from Nazareth. But the fulfillment of all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the realization of the much-prophesied work of the long-awaited Messiah, they were challenged to see in him something far greater than met the eye. Through the Baptist's words and work, God was calling all of them to relate to Jesus under this title, to allow Jesus to take away their sins, and later to eat Jesus, 
just like the Jews needed to eat the Passover lamb to be freed from Pharaoh and become capable of the journey to the promised land. Jesus, however, didn't stop the imagery and identification of himself as the lamb with John the Baptist's expression. He would later call himself the good shepherd, tell us that we were sheep of his flock, before his ascension would entrust to St. Peter and to all of us in the church the care of that flock. After the resurrection of the Sea of Galilee, he asked St. Peter three times in response to Peter's threefold denial on Good Friday, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And when Peter replied that he did, Jesus commissioned him, feed my lamb, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. If we, like Peter, love the Lord, then we will show it by how we feed and protect his sheep and lambs. Those others, no matter how small, young, or vulnerable, Jesus identifies the love we have for him with the love that we give to his sheep and lambs. Why is this important? Next Wednesday, January 22nd, we will mark the 47th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that with its companion case, Doe v. Bolton, made abortion, the killing of Christ's smallest lambs, legal in the United States. It's a day of penance, prayer, and fasting. The Jewish historian Josephus said that during the heyday of the temple in Jerusalem, up to 256,000 lambs were killed in one year. Just imagine the amount of blood that would have rained down like a river in the temple from the massacre of so many animals. Then multiply that number several times over, and that's the number of human beings that have been slaughtered legally every year in our country since Roe. And yet the killing goes on. We Catholics are supposed to do something about it. Jesus, the Lamb of God, told us that whatever we do or fail to do to the least of our brothers and sisters, and who's less than those growing in the womb, that whatever we do to them, we do to him. He told us elsewhere that whoever receives a child in his name receives him. We need to behold the Lamb of God, to behold Jesus in each of the endangered lambs made in his image and likeness. And we need to rise up to defend and protect them. In the first reading of this Sunday's Mass, Isaiah will tell us quite clearly that the Lord formed me as a servant from the womb. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that God called him from the womb and consecrated him as a prophet to the nations. The Lord has a relationship with us in the womb. And the Lord called us from the womb to be his servants and part of that service is to cherish, defend, and protect others made in his image and likeness who are growing within their mom's wombs. Just like a lamb isn't a particularly impressive animal, so a little child growing in the womb might not stick out all that much in secular discourse. But we know that just as the carpenter at the Jordan was far more than met the eye, so we know that every child growing in the womb is someone special, someone loved by the Lord, someone called by the Lord, someone that the Lord has entrusted to your loving care and mine. Let us ask the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, to take away from our midst the sin of abortion and the culture of waste and death that leads to it, to forgive us our own sins of omission and commission with regard to tending and feeding as lambs and sheep, and to strengthen us with courage to work to transform not only our laws, but our culture. We ask him to help us, whom we will behold under the appearances of bread and wine at Mass, to learn how to behold his beautiful face in every unborn little brother and sister. Behold the Lamb of God.
Thank you, Father Landry, for giving us your homily that you do for us every week to prepare us for the Sunday's gospel. And listeners, if you want to hear his homily or read it, his daily homily, he's at catholicpreaching.com. And I highly recommend that. It's always a treasure to re- to hear from Father Landry. And it was a treasure and a pleasure today to hear uh, about uh, to hear from Father Pollard, who was so kind to give us his time. And and I'm a little jealous, Andrea, that he is your pastor. You should be. I'm sure you. You know, you. I I have heard your priests um, on the key, and they're lovely. But yeah, Father Pollard is is a special treasure and a, a dear friend, and it. If any of people have been listening long enough, you must know that it was incredibly nervous for me to have our parish priest here because I really respect him so much for what he's doing for all of the the faithful in St. John the Beloved. What's he like when your children make a lot of noise? I think that's a good test of, of a priest. I think he's, he. you know, first, my children never make any noise in the Mass. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. That's Ashley's children. My kids, <laughs> definitely, they should be thrown out of mass. They're so bad. <laughs> you know, I think, I, I don't know. We should have asked that question, but I think priests get in the zone. I mean, I and and the other thing is I think he understands that um, the most important thing for parents, especially if parents of rambunctious and young children, is to be in the mass and uh, doesn't want to do anything to turn us away or make us feel like we're not welcome. So That I've, is so true. I've always felt, and there have been times where I've dragged people into that cry room afterwards. Um, but in general, everyone—it's a—it's a, a parish full of large families with always a baby um, coming into the the mix, and it's it's definitely a, a place where you hear lots of chatter, but also lots of um, prayer is being said all around. You know, I wasn't I wasn't being falsely uh, complimentary to Father Pollard. I, I think it, it this is a great start to our Church on the Ground Going really Forward in Joy series. Awesome. <laughs> because, because uh, you know, when, I, when we first were talking about this series, we were talking about different ways that the church is vibrant. And we were talking about how, for instance, in my parish, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, homeless ministry called Hermanos de la Calle, Brothers mm-hmm. of the Street. And, and that's amazing. And it's, and it's ways that people get... Uh, integrated into the church and into the, the, the gospel through sort of the hands-on of social services, right? Uh, but um, it's wonderful to start with just the beauty of the Mass and the extraordinary form. So yeah. thank you, ladies, for joining me and Father Pollard. And uh, thank you to our listeners for listening to the podcast or the radio show of Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Gracie Christie, and uh, I was joined today by Andrea picciotti Bear and Ashley McGuire, my colleagues, as well as Father Pollard. And thank you so much. And please subscribe to our podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>